Ghana is better than football, really. There's other connections. What? Do we have other sports here at AM? <laughs> I'm in women's soccer. I'm really good at it. But. We have good sports across the board from what I understand. I don't I don't follow sports very well, but Howdy, and welcome or welcome back to the Idea to Impact podcast, the show where we are bringing you faculty and community members from Texas A&M to talk about their experience with technology transfer, commercialization, and entrepreneurship. This week, we have part two of our discussion with Dr. Wei Wan, one of our licensing managers here at Innovation Partners. In today's podcast, we dive a little bit deeper into the process of technology transfer and discuss topics such as the differences in authorship and mentorship and ownership, as well as why it might take a few months before you hear a decision on whether we will file a patent for your invention. Let's get started. You see dissertations uh, come across the, the, uh, the enabling disclosure issue. So if I have a dissertation and I'm defending my dissertation, and um, I'm sure some technology has to come af- out of dissertation work. Maybe not a lot, but I'm sure there's some. Are, is there any words of Are there any words of warning that you have for uh, PhD students or the doctoral students in that situation? I think thesis defending is all right because in the thesis thesis defending, it's only your committee members, and your committee members, I assume, will be faculty of Texas A&M. And usually, we do invite people outside of the department, but not, it's not easy to invite somebody outside of the system. And okay. since all the technologies are system IPs and sharing with anybody who's employed by the system is not a violation, it's not a public disclosure, but however, wow. yeah. That's, that's important. Good- so, if I, so if I go down to my colleague or if I have lunch with somebody in a different department, if they're at Texas A&M, and I happen to say something that is not a disclosure. That, that's not somebody, a public disclosure because it's within. Disclosure. Yeah, not a okay. public disclosure. And but if you like sketch down your idea on the napkin and the napkin, you give the napkin to the waitress, then it is. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. No, no yeah. passing of waitress. <laughs> <laughs> but do give more tips. That's right. <laughs> you uh, wrote your idea down on a napkin and your wife just found the napkin. She could come back and say, for a really nice tip, I won't, I'll give it back to you and I'll call this a disclosure. Right, right. Or only eat lunch on campus. Yeah. And maybe, maybe you'll be okay then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So once, once people um, do come to talk to you, let's say they come to talk to you either pre-disclosure like you'd like them to, or you, they come to you in the disclosure. Um, uh, so let's say they're at the point of disclosing. What, what, if I'm somebody that's going to get to the disclosure point with, with you in your office, what can I expect as the next step after I make the disclosure? Okay, so after I receive the disclosure, I'll check if the disclosure is complete. And our current disclosure form is like a questionnaire has 16 questions and some of them when we look at it, it seems convoluted and like repetitive. And, but nicely that has a training video lead you <laughs> step by step, it's been really well. 
And so I check, so the point I check will be in the grant. So did you list the supporting grant that you use? That's important for our ownership analysis. And also that's important for our reporting responsibilities. We need to report to federal grant, uh, state grant agencies for any commercialization activities. So we need to make a record and let them know. And also private agencies might also have like reporting requirement attached. We need to know that as well. As far as I know, the Cancer Society has it and CIPRIT has it as well. So when you file your mentioned disclosure, when we start filing IP protections, when we start like licensing, we need to keep those grant agencies posted and some of them even require like profit sharing, et cetera. Good news I is, don't worry. Because yeah. I have a question about that, about ownership. Because I think, um, was there a point, and I, and I think I, it may be like the, the Bay-Dole Act or whatever it's called, that when, like, so it, it used to be that before that, like these funding agencies would own the inventions, but then after the act, it kind of gave the universities ownership rights. Is that is that correct, or am I missing that lesson? Yes, yes. So, so um, cut under the current law, university has ownership right, and the grant agencies they do not they they don't make like profit out of the technology just because they found it. But if they are like in cases, if they are also like the VA, they support like in the past, they support our faculties as well. If our faculty draw salaries from VA and then the technology is co-owned. Okay. If it's just a pure grant, it's not. Okay, okay. I see, so let, let, and just to be clear about the disclosure process, if I'm employed by Texas A&M system and I, let's just say it's the university and uh, in my capacity as that employee, I, I discover something or I have a technology that could be commercializable, but I don't want to commercialize it. You know, I'm just a pure scientist here. Do I still have to make a disclosure? Is it optional or, or, or am, I, am I still... Um, Am I still compelled to make a disclosure even if I have no interest in being part of the commercialization? Unfortunately, you do. So it's, wow. um, as an employee, it's your responsibility to disclose any- and It doesn't matter what my intention is going forward with the technology. If I have something that's potentially commercial, commercializable, I am supposed to disclose? Yes. Now, why yeah. is that? Because if I don't want to run with this and do a startup and do a license and all that stuff, why do I still have to make a disclosure? Oh, well, since all technologies uh, derive from faculty research activities, they're right. AM property because they were invented on AM premise and they were developed using AM resources, facilities, and the inventors are supported by AM salaries. So their AM, their system IP and therefore state property. 
is not individual employees' choice whether or not to commercialize and get the value out of the technologies. So our process in my interpretation of technology transfer and commercialization is to protect state property and, and also get value for the state and the public. So, so I know a lot of our, so I talked to a lot of our mentors and most faculties, their interest is not making themselves rich in retire, but they they the more they care more about public good, and I want my technologies to be out there and benefit more people, which is definitely a very noble thought. But in reality, if there is no profit, who will work so hard to get your technology out there to help the patients? So, so here what we're doing is. We try to share the profit with entrepreneurs or with our industry partners. Therefore, in a collaborative effort, we will put our research result out there and let it benefit like a broader population. Mm -hmm. So even if I'm not interested in the commercialization of it, I'm still, I still have an, I still have an obligation toward the legal person that is Texas A&M University system, they have an ownership right in some of that. And yet I still might get a pecuniary uh, return uh, on that, right? Yes. So it, it, it's not only a, a duty that I have, but there's no harm. You, you're still gonna try to get it out to people just through the commercial avenues um, that will support it uh, the best. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. So okay. disclosing, to the system is part uh, of your employee duty. And well, unfortunately, although we will be doing most of the work, but you're if you're really busy and you have no interest in commercialization, and we will try to minimize your time and effort in the whole process. But from time to time, we still need a mentor to be on board to help realize, to help commercialize the technology. Right. Yeah. I, I think that sometimes faculty might be a little overwhelmed with when they hear about how much work it can take to take an invention and to get it licensed or if a, you know, a spin out, a startup needs to be created. But the faculty inventors aren't always, and a lot of times I think are, they're not the ones that are starting the startup, they're not, and they're not certainly doing it on their own, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, most university technologies are very early in stage because in an academic setting, you can like scale up and you can make a like prototype that's more close to your product. So for the early stage technologies, um, most likely, it's not license ready to like large and public traded companies. And most of the time we work with factories and try to set up startup companies. And the biggest challenge in the startup route is lack of talented pool. 
So faculty has their teaching and research obligations and it's really hard for them to be distracted and work as CEO for the startup company. And then ideally we should have a postdoc or graduate student who is instead of in just focus on the academic track wants to be a professor in the future, they like to take an alternative approach and take a leading role in the commercialization and work as the CEO of the company and develop the company, uh, develop the technology further to, to bring it closer to the market. And but however, we know, actually the biggest challenge I've experienced so far is being at college station it's really hard to attract people to come here. And our right. own Aggies, and after they graduate, they fly everywhere as well. So, so the whole economic development and the whole entrepreneurship environment is very important. Last year, I've traveled with different faculty members interested in startup to Houston actually to attend workshops and boot camps um, that's in hosted by Rice. So basically they have those workshops and every month, so they, they work on a different technology and people usually as graduate students, like almost graduating fourth year, fifth year graduate student and like young postdocs get together and collaborate and work out a business plan for giving technology. In those graduate students and postdocs, they are those outliers. They, they're not only interested in the academic track, they are looking for outside opportunities. So basically our purpose was, so we, we did make several trips. Our purpose wasn't to market our technology. We're there to to try to see who can recruit some CEOs. And, and right. we, we did make some connections. And I think and some of my mentors are still talking to those graduate students in there. Either she, so I think one girl is graduating um, in December. So, so probably, hopefully, we can work something out and have a CEO who is enthusiastic, who is eager and who knows the technology is very important for the success of the startup and also for the success of the technology. And I think we are also doing, so, so we initiated several um, efforts trying to build up our economic environment like around Station. I think the co-creation slash i program that Jack is testing, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, kind of similar as the RICE event that I have to travel all the way to. But if we are going to host some sessions and in addition to the traditional participant that we, we got for our previous um, Mm, Aggie Forum, we've got faculties, we invite like industry partners, so more of the senior expertise because of their like 
and experience, knowledge, and connections. Maybe also in addition to that, we recruit young graduate students, postdocs who are interested in entrepreneurship. And so on one side, it's a training opportunity for them. And on the other side, for the project owners, the table owners, they, they can get their they have an access, access uh, entry to the talent pool. They can get to meet and talk to those young, passionate entrepreneurs and maybe there is a fit. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I think that's a very promising program and save me from the trip driving down to Houston. <laughs> Well, that, that was my, that was the primary, uh, you know, impetus uh, of, of the project was how do we save way the travel uh, of going back and forth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, so, it's um, yeah, that, so you're welcome. You know? <laughs> um, you know, but you bring up a good issue that, you know, being College Station, we're about, you know, two and a half hours to three hours from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Now we're 45 minutes from Austin and Houston, depending on which part of the city you're, you're talking about. And so, you know, we're not that far from three very major hubs, but it seems far enough that uh, a lot of people find it difficult to get here. And it physically is difficult to get to College Station, mm -hmm. even though you can fly into, you know, like I said, three major cities are right there. Um, I know that other schools that have a lot more uh, venture capital interest or investor interest in, in some of these new technologies they're investing in uh, are a, they, they do have, um, they're in places where it's easier to get to, or it's like Cambridge, Massachusetts or San Francisco, where there's already just a, a really vibrant VC uh, commu community. Um, one of the things that we had tossed around is what you had mentioned, uh, Way, which was, you know, Aggies are diehard Aggies. Mm -hmm. And when they graduate, they're still diehard Aggies for life. Um, and one of the assets that Texas A&M might have that others don't is that former student or that alumni, alumni pool. Um, from what, what you've seen uh, of, of former students and the needs from the um, from the tech transfer operations, do you think that former students would be a, a good pool to tap into, because they want to get here for football, if nothing else, right? So. Right. <laughs> yeah, they the former Aggies they do visit. Well, like Beth, she stayed, and then we have a lot of them who flew away, but they do come back for footballs and come back and visit. So if we establish some additional connections other than football, they, I, I think it's very valuable. Yeah, nothing is better than football, really. I think that technology. There, there's other connections? What? Do we have other sports here at a and <laughs> I mean, I'm in soccer. I'm really good at it. But. We have good sports across the board from what I understand. I don't, I don't follow sports very well, but. So what would those others be? Uh, you talked about the co-creation. Um, you know, what, I, 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 I'm, this is a sneak attack. I haven't given you a chance to think about that. But from the hip, what do you think are some of the ways that we could engage our former student community to give them a reason to be here besides football? 
you know, to let them engage with the startup companies, to let them engage in the emerging with the emerging technologies that you're working on. How do we take advantage of that asset of, of over a half a million living alumni, former students? I, I think people are interested and people care about the tomorrow of Texas A&M, especially those former Aggies. And while I was still at College of Science and I worked on the diversity programs and also the outreach programs, and we, we do have former Aggies actually reach out to the college and their cases, they want to make donations. In their cases, they want to be involved somehow in the research and education. It's just they, they're looking for opportunities, but those are sporadic. Like you have a former alumnus who is always like coming back and in close conversation with the college dean, then he knows what's going on. He, and he, he can find what he needed and what the university, the college needed, and there is a match. But for most of people, and everyone's busy with their life and they cannot spend so much time look for and digging to see if there's a match, if there's anything needed that he can provide, he or she can provide. If we have a platform somehow, I don't know what it is, I don't know the format, right, but, right. but if we have, if we can have an instrument and list our rights somewhere that um, they can look into, they can check from time to time, oh, this might be an opportunity that I can participate and contribute back. And maybe that can help facilitate and save some time and, and make it easier for them to come back. It's just That's a great so idea. And so maybe Tyson, if you're listening, or Porter from AFS, if you're listening, consider having uh, some way that we distribute these summaries Mm -hmm. of, right. the, of the technologies that we have uh, for folks, even if they're not necessarily saying, I want to hear about this, because you never know who might be interested. Right. They can always not read the email, right? So uh, maybe there's something like that, that the platform can be um, advertised out to the former students. Uh, and and I, I think making on our end too is, um, you know, we're a fairly new office. So right. making ourselves more visible to those right. who are graduating, um, right. especially, you know, our May's counterparts who are going into business and are, a lot of those, those students are entrepreneurs um, and kind of being like, you know, having a focus on not just donating money, you know, and saying, you know, there's other ways that you can contribute you know, to give back to your university other than saying, yes, I'll make a donation uh, when somebody calls you at night wanting you to give back, right? Um, so, and telling people, you know, there's, you know, it's great to make it a one-time donation, but here's a way for you to not just make a donation, but to get involved with something that you're going to see benefits from or for, for a long time. So, um, you know, you might not get a building named after you, but right. you've got something that is impacting people all over the world. 
There's also the two pocket theory, which is, you know, uh, if you call me in the middle of the night and I'm an alumnus, I go, okay, here's my donation money out of this pocket. But then I've got my investment pocket. And I usually don't reach into my investment pocket for my donations or vice versa. So if you're saying, give me money for the traditional type of donation, I have a limited amount and here's this, but I have this whole other pocket mm -hmm. of investments that I might consider reaching into if you reframe how I can contribute right. to the, the emerging technologies of A&M. Yeah, and I think right. you see a lot of that with like the Aggie Angel Network. Um, yeah. We had Omar Hakeem right. here. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, that's, that, that's a great way too, but I feel like, you know, the, the kind of technology marketing that we're doing is a, a little bit different, because um, yeah. we have the Aggie Angel Network, you know, they already have their companies formed, whereas they have a technology that we're just trying to get licensed out. We're not maybe necessarily trying to have a startup, um, even though spinouts, startups are really good economically for everybody, um, but saying, hey, you know, if you, if you, if, you know, if you're, if you work for Johnson & Johnson, here's some of our technologies that we're looking to get um, licensed out. I would really like to, this is an idea that I've been playing with that I would like for our to see our office do, like maybe in our five-year plan is to do a really big like technology showcase mm. and have a special Aggie night where it's only, only uh, alumni, former students are able to join and they really get to talk. You know, we kind of, we do a lot of like Aggie stuff, like maybe bring in the yellators because everybody likes that. But then like they get first access to yeah, talking right. to our inventors and kind of give them a little special treatment because they're they are the ones that are really like really wanting to give back, you know? I think that's achievable. And I think in today's uh, more virtual environment, you can get more people involved so they don't have to figure out how to come to College Station, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's got to get them online. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think. Anyway, I, I I took us down a rabbit hole. I mm -hmm. I, I apologize because we were talking about the process of, you know, I, I make a disclosure and, and you're going through your analysis, um, but uh, take me up to the point where after you've kind of talked done your initial analysis, um, uh, does your office also then tries to procure rights and protections uh, mm -hmm. to the intellectual property? Uh, that's represented by the technology. Is that correct? Right, right. So, so back to the process. Um, after invention disclosure is filed, and I make sure that all the necessary questions are answered, we'll do an initial analysis to identify the rights, like NN system have rights, and then various grant agency might have rights, like it may be right. co-owned, and then if there is any outside companies and collaborating institute will, will figure out so the ownership. And then after that, or simultaneously occurring, as long as the invention disclosure is complete, we will submit it to export control because that, that's a department of commerce. Um, and what's export control in a nutshell? What is that? Um, export control is, so the bigger picture to increase United States competitiveness in the world of commercialization. And the detail is if a technology is sensitive and because other foreign countries, they do not share with us 
freely and we cannot share with them is a restrictive gotcha. treatment. So to, gotcha. to protect US rights. And, and also, of course, uh, more obvious uh, is that if anything is using the military and defense right. technologies, we can't Natural share. So, right. Yeah, so basically, um, every invention disclosure that come into our office need to be screened, uh, reviewed by export control in order to know the rights and responsibilities, what we can and cannot do. So it depends on, well, export control regulation change all the time. And I'm not an expert, I can't account for that, but, but and depends on the sensitivity levels and some of them we can't even file patent on, some of them we can't commercialize and some of them has low level of sensitivity that we can uh, we, we, we are not allowed to share with foreign nationals. And so, so there are different levels. And after the export control review, they will give us a report and let us know which level is they have a coding system. And so we know what we are allowed and not allowed do, to do to this technology. So once really, most of our uh, technology are not export control sensitive so so we can commercialize freely as we are able to but for those actual control sensitive technologies and we have to follow the regulation strictly so that's something mm, conducted outside of our office and the process really varies if under lucky and emergency cases we get returned within the week and under other cases at the longest like um, four six four to six months to to get it returned back because it also depends on their workload the workload on their end how many cases they receive and I think they are not only responsible to review the technologies and they have other responsibilities as well. So, gotcha. so it's kind of unpredictable from our end. But um, so this come back to the publication timeline. If you have an imminent publication plan, please let, let me know so we can try to expedite the process by request the rush process from export control review. Yeah, so so that's export control. It's kind of we 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 can't control the the timeline. And then once the invention disclosure comes back to our office with an export control recommendation, we will initiate um, two kinds of two line analysis, patentability analysis, and also marketability analysis. But I'll use one uh, example to show why the two-product analysis is important. Um, I worked with, uh, last year, I worked with a battery inventor who had a sponsored research um, grant working on a T-cell mediated cancer therapy. So it's an immunotherapy therapy. It's a hot topic. Every major company is doing that. It's, it's um, like, Current the preferred therapy for cancer treatment because it's low toxicity 
and higher um, efficiency compared to chemo because chemo create a lot of collateral damages. And it's more like disease specific. It, it kills the cancer cells more accurately than chemo and radio. So, so the market is different out there. Market interest is high. We still need to do market analysis, yes. So, so this is a case actually filed early last year, early in the spring, like March. And then in the summer, one day I got a call from a frustrated inventor saying, do you check publication? I said, yeah, I do read publications, but I, I, I don't read everything. I, I just read those research tools. He said, well, it's published. So it's a hard paper published. The same, uh, most similar technology is published by a company that's a direct competitor of the sponsoring company. Oh. And the technology actually has a lot of potentials. It's using an FDA approved drug to control, to modulate the activity of the T cells. So, um, in cancer therapies, we know the patients are usually not in great conditions and they, their health system is very weak. And one of the um, serious damage is caused by cytokine storm. And, and to extend a little bit, like a lot of collateral damage for COVID patients is caused by cytokine storm. It's, a, it's part of our body's natural Immune, immune response. So once we have an invader, our body identify it, the cell, immune cells will release various kinds of chemicals. And it's like a positive feedback. One person, one cell started screaming and it will alert the cell around that one. And then we'll alert another layer. So the whole immune system will be activated and then they actively control the virus the pathogen or the cancer cell, which is good thing, but if the patient is very weak already and the immune attack will, can be so strong that the patient cannot make it, cannot survive it. So, so, so in immunotherapy, especially the T cell mediated cancer therapy, it's very important to keep the patient alive so, so we can continue the therapy. And the current approach is to, to give it for a certain time and then stop giving the mm, therapeutic agent and let the patient rest. But ideally, if you can turn it on and off automatically or in an easy way, and it will not only make it easier to the patient and also like increase the patient's survival rate because you let the patient recover and then get the second round. So our inventor's idea is to use this HCV and FDA approved HCV drug. It's the most wonderful drug that Gilead had that, that solved, <laughs> that almost killed their own business because it works so well, so you cure all the patients. So that, that's, that's a reason, like before the COVID, that's a reason that their stock price <laughs> lowered significantly and everybody giving them low rate. So yeah, yeah. So uh, to give using that drug and to modulate T cell activities. The, and, and so the company published 
an article that's using exactly same drug and working on the same subpopulation of T cells, CD19 plus T cells. Uh, so, so I heard it, then I called up expert control. They were very helpful and they expect the review and release the technology the next day saying it's not sensitive. So please do whatever you can. The first step is patentability analysis. And usually we'll do prior art search in, in this case, the prior art's right there. So it's almost identical. I had a meeting with the faculty and find out that there is fine difference. So the competing company strategy is to turn it off. So, so you have the T cell ther uh, therapeutic um, T cells and then the immunity is elevated. You're treating the can cancer patient. And if the patient gets too weak, you give the HCV drug. So you bring down the immune responses so the patient can rest and take breath. But so you keep giving the HCV drugs to keep the patient recover and then the cancer cell will grow, you give it again. And our inventor strategy is, okay, you, you give the T cell, therapeutic T cells, but they are not active. So you give the patient IV, the patient is still there and trying to struggle. And then you give the HCV drug, turn on T cells, so it starts chewing off cancer cells. But however, the cytokine storm accumulate, so the patient will have collateral damages. And then if the patient gets into a critical point, you remove, you stop the drug. So when you give the drug, you activate your therapy, therapeutic T cell. So although they're using the same system, same control agent, but it's like the effect is reverse. We do get novelty here because the mechanism is different. So That's significant enough of a distinction for patentability? Yes, yes, because the mechanism is different. So we don't have a claim of the drug, it's Gillies. We don't have the claim of CD19, somebody already, it's a product of nature, it's human cell. But the only possible pattern we have is a method. And our method works on a different mechanism from their method. So we do have patentability, hooray. And the inventor can publish, we can apply patent and, and there's a very good chance that we can get it granted. So that's the first line of analysis. Right. However, patent is not another publication. It's a very pricey process. So to get an US patent alone, you have from 30 to 50,000 to get it granted. And then after granting, you have still pay maintenance fees. So it's costly, we, we don't just patent it and shelf it. And our ultimate goal is to commercialize it. So we have our um, commercialization um, analysis or marketability analysis. The market's out there already, it's an easy analysis, but is our technology marketable because there's this competing company and we do have an ideal potential licensee, which is the company sponsored the research, right? right but right. the problem is they're already mad. 
they, they are already very angry with us because uh, the invention disclosure was submitted in March and in July, we still right. didn't do anything. So they thought we screwed up, we ruined the whole um, project that I didn't manage is that to- of export? Is that because of export control? Is that why it was delayed between March and July? Yeah, I, I never heard from export control between March and July. So, yeah. so yeah, so instead of taking the blame, in addition to taking all the blame, and I did manage to request a meeting via the mentor with the sponsor and eventually convince them there's still commercial um, potentials, commercial abilities, because um, the technology from their competitors the T cell therapy is on, 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 on. You give drop, it drop. You let your patient survive. But the drop is not complete because their drug is not killing all the available cells. Their drug is prevent new T cells. So you have this increase, increase, increase drug and plateaued. But you still have the high basal level. So if a patient is like a terminal cancer patient, he or she will survive at the basal level. But ours is zero, zero, zero. You add a drug, you come up. And then after the drug, so the drug has, uh, can be retained in our bloodstream for certain hours. It has a half-life. After the drug is consumed, you drop. But you don't want it drop, you add another drug, it keeps. But if you, your patient is like can, can, can hope for it, you stop adding the drug, it drops so your patient can rest and recover. And they took this argument, they agree that um, these two models, our model will work better in a clinical setting, although the, the scientific concept is kind of similar, just reciprocal. And but in the clinical setting, it should be better. And we talked to some physicians at MD Anderson. It's, at that time, we already have our provisional file. So it's protected. You can talk to physician oncologists. So provisional is like, a, is like a, a quick file, kind of, a short file? Yes. Just to reserve it? OK, gotcha. Yes, so provisional is not a real patent application. USPTO will not review it. It's just an, an instrument that we get priority date stamped on all our data. So basically the provisional filing is quick and cheap and you compile all the data available, you send to PTO, PTO stamped with the date they receive it, then that's your priority date. Any disclosure after that is safe. And so we had that and we talked to several physicians and they are mm, professional opinion is yes, in clinical setting, our way will work better. And then take those quote, went to the company, did manage to convince them that this is still valuable and we didn't like screw up everything. Right. And <laughs> luckily, um, although Matt, they, are, they agreed to sign um, for an option agreement. So option agreement is basically they retain the right for a certain amount, give, the routine is 12 months that we will market to anybody else at the expiration of the 12 month, they can 
make a decision whether or not to license it. But during the 12 months, they can take the technology, like they pay certain consideration. They can take the technology and then try it on their own to see, try it out to oh. validate the technology to see whether or not they want it. So yeah, so Bobby is working with Option E right now and trying to see if they want to upgrade the option agreement to a license agreement. Mm. So, so it's a crisis with a happy ending. The marketability and checking to see whether it's commercially viable. Who's doing that work in our office? Is that you and Bobby or is that like Brittany and Daniel or do you have grad students working on that? Um, Bobby and myself working on those, and but we do get tremendous help from the graduate student and bringing in Daniel helps as well, but their main assignment, their major responsibility is not that. So graduate student will be doing the literature search and they, they will be doing the research, secondary market research. So not going to talk, not talking to um, people to, to um, like customers, but instead they'll pull information from the internet and synthesize them. And then Bobby and I will review those and then we'll make suggestions to Mike who eventually make the decision whether or not, but based on our analysis, make the decision whether or not to support the commercialization effort. And just so the listeners, uh, our listeners know, we're talking about Bobby Melvin because Wei, you and Bobby are the, are the two licensing associates, licensing professionals that we have in the office, correct? And we also have some other, um, I, don't, I forget the titles, but you, you are the two deal makers, right? You, you and Bobby, yeah. for the most part, is that correct? Okay. Yes, yes. So people so are usually I'll, working with, with one of you or both of you when they come into the office, correct? Yes. So both Bobby and I, we are senior licensing managers of the office. And our office has the credo to, to grave model. So we work with the inventors from pre-invention disclosure all the way to like license agreement compliance. So we monitor the whole lifespan of the technology. And in addition to us, there's Brini and Daniel, both are law school graduates and they work as um, licensing service coordinators. Basically, Brittany works with um, Bobby more and Daniel works with myself more and they provide supporting like they will be assigned various kinds of roles like agreement analysis and agreement drafting. And also they help to do prior art analysis for technologies as well. And then we have part-time graduate student um, assistants and they are usual master students with a technical background and they will be, um, they help um, gathering information for on market and patent technical um, information as well. I usually get a, a question from people that I think is difficult to answer and you can confirm whether it's difficult to answer or whether it's not. They'll usually say, well, after I make a disclosure, you know, 
how long until I get my patent and until, you know, there's some type of licensing deal or something like that? And my answer is that depends. It, it depends on so many different factors from the industry to the technology to export control to all these different things. I have a really hard time giving an answer other than from like a year to 10 years. Because <laughs> we've had some guests on this show that they're not even done with the with because of clinical trials and things like this that it becomes very very difficult so is there a better answer than that or is it really just it all depends unfortunately yeah it's yeah. all depends okay okay yeah so it's, of our office. it's innovation okay. partners it, that's that's our office like slogan it's <laughs> that's your it depends <laughs> Well, and, and because it does, because it, it does, it, I mean, if I'm creating a new uh, strawberry seed variant or variety, um, there, I think, are some templates that, you know, for agricultural things that, you know, the, it would be probably a different office that would handle it within the university, but those are relatively easy. Monsanto probably wants to license those, right? Those aren't right. probably going to be 15 years until you get a deal with something like that, if it's patentable. Whereas if you're trying to, um, like with uh, Dr. Thomas Kent, who was dealing with post-stroke uh, procedure uh, uh, patients, when you're putting stuff into the human body, it can take a lot longer, especially when it's a drug. Uh, I mean, I think he was yeah. on death. Wasn't he like nine or 10 years or something like that? Yeah, that he's still nine or 10 years, it, so. still waiting for like FDA approval or something. Right, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah that, that, that's why we need to be creative when we work on license agreement for therapeutics considering that FDA approval process is so lengthy and patent lives only 20 years if you take right. that chunk to get FDA approval and then after that 10 nine years and you start testing the water for the market and how many years do you have left to enjoy the profit, enjoying your royalty based on net sale, because net sale it's after you take the drug to the market. So, so we're trying to be creative to set in addition to net sales, um, like royalty based on net sales, we'll set milestones, minimum annual, and then instead of setting the license term based on the patent life, and we create alternatives to try to extend beyond the patent life to, to uh, yeah, to get some value, so, uh, get some value. You had talked to, uh, you talked about the cradle to grave um, uh, approach that, that the office, the office has. And um, uh, it, it really is that, I mean, all, I think all of the guests that we've had so far, Beth, that have, that have had experiences directly with the, the TAMU IP office um, have expressed that there's always uh, assistance that's being provided to them from the TAMU IP office in, in the technology transfer. So when people start to get involved with the office way, uh, they're, they're they're going to be working with the office typically for a while, right? Because no matter what the process is, it's even uh, it's even down to collecting royalty payments and distributing royalties and stuff like that 
our office is at least involved in that process, um, even post license, right? So yes, yes. The full relationship. So the the distribution is through the system, so TTC does it, but we are still copied, and and because we are the ones who actually worked out and negotiated the license, and we know the percentage distribution and how do we decide on this percentage. And, and so if, so I've experienced inventors have questions about the royalty distributions and, and like in one license agreement, there are multiple IPs and they expire at different times. And then all the list inventors, they have different <laughs> contributions and they are named on different patents. So it's like a whole two dimensional spreadsheet. And once they have questions, TTC will still direct to us to explain. Okay. So, so that's the advantage of the cradle to grave um, model because you have somebody there that you can always turn to that has the answer to all the questions right. for the whole process. Right, single point of contact, right. And if people wanna get in touch with you, um, what's the best way of doing that? Um, disclosure well, or it's pre-disclosure and they wanna reach out to you after hearing this, how do they reach out to you? Uh, well, previously it's email and my office phone, now it's my cell phone and my email. Okay, so without giving your cell phone out, we'll uh, just put, they can just email you directly? Yes, they, they do email me directly. And actually, uh, at TTC, our cell phone, although it's not paid by the university, but it's uh, printed on our business card. So inventors call me all the time. Oh, okay. Time for our access away. <laughs> right. So we'll we'll put the um we'll put the website of course and and your and your uh, email address not only in the the uh, show description notes but also hopefully we got it here on the screen as I, as I'm pointing out here. Yeah, yeah, email. Oh, you reach out to Way, right? And uh, yeah. Yeah, even if you're not ready to make a disclosure, they should reach out to you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I do talk to them a lot, and sometimes. And they're trying to decide if this is a subject matter that's patentable even. So like the research I did for graduate school and none of them are patentable, but at UC, they have bigger tech transfer office. And before I publish anything, actually, we don't have to send it anywhere, but somehow I always get emails or calls from the tech transfer office and asking if it's possible to commercialize or, or get intellectual property out of, but our research is too theoretical. It's completely right. like theory and magnetic study. So nothing is applicable, but I did have quite a few inventors to discuss. So we go over the technology, the research, and see if it's anything that's patentable. Right. And yeah. because you mentioned disclosure questionnaire, it's a lot to fill. Like you, you need to spend at least one hour or two to completely answer all the questions. So, so it's not a lot of effort. If it's something as theoretical as what I did in graduate school, 
there, there's no need to go through the process. And if you're listening and you're not um, faculty, um, we're not a graduate student here. We do have an office hour program that faculty and students can use, but also we, you know, we welcome people from the community. We do have uh, office hour appointments with IP attorneys. Um, you can sign up for a free 30 minute appointment. And a lot of times what, what people are coming to and talking to the attorneys about are whether something is patentable or is you know, viable in terms of commercial ability. So um, definitely reach out to Way if you're an inventor. And it kind of sounds like it's never too early. So even if, like, it sounds like there's no dumb questions um, when it comes to working with us, so. Yeah, I, I used to give extra credit for people asking questions in my lectures. Right. <laughs> Always welcome. Yeah. So, Wei, what's on the future, you know, for, for you, or what do you see? What do you see coming up next with even with the office uh, at this point? Um, actually, we are getting more help, and I think later this week uh, we we have an additional opening for licensing associate. So we're getting the third uh, licensing professional and according to Mike, we do receive some wonderful applications and we're gonna go over it sometime later this week and, and initiate the process to get additional help in the office. So hopefully before long, in addition to Bobby and myself, you'll have a third point of contact. To we're Bob. growing, yes. Yeah, we're growing. Yes. But you're happy about that way. I know you're one of the busiest people in our office. Definitely. It's, it's, it would be great if we can have somebody share the caseload because we do each handle, like Bobby and I, we do each handle hundreds of cases. So. Wow. That's, That's awesome. impressive. Yeah. yeah, reduce the number. Therefore, we can spend more time um, with individual faculty managers. Awesome. Well, Wei, thanks for joining us today. Um, and thank you to our listeners for joining us for another episode. Join us uh, next week, um, where you will continue to hear more stories of uh, faculty um, and entrepreneurs um, working towards commercializing their technology. So again, I am Beth Durmeyer, and my co-host is Jack Manhire. And we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody.